To be honest, I'm not looking forward to giving this message this morning because uh, I spoke about a year ago, and if if God deals with me in the last year after that sermon, like if He does that again, I don't I don't want to do it uh, because. Uh, like I spoke last year on the prodigal son and the elder son, the elder brother. And then for the whole last year after that, God has been like, you're the elder brother. You're the elder brother. And so it's like, okay. Uh, and now what I'm speaking on this morning, it's like, God, I don't want to, I don't want you to deal with me again. Uh, but that's what the word does. And that's what God does. Okay. Um, so, to open, I want to talk about, I want to talk about a missionary this morning. Um, I don't think we talk about missionaries enough. Um, uh, I've talked about him before. His, uh, his name was, uh, Adoniram Judson. And, uh, I think it's worth talking about. Uh, he was a missionary to Burma or Myanmar, as we know it today, uh, in the 1820s. And he served there. That was a really hard place at that time, uh, with his wife. And uh, they, he was, he was taken prisoner by the Burmese government. He was serving there, but then war broke out between England and Burma. And uh, he, he was taken prisoner because they didn't trust any foreigners. But he was an American, and so his wife would be like, hey, he's an American. He has nothing to do with this. But they wouldn't listen, and so they took him prisoner. And prison was a rough place. Um, he, the prison was dank and wet and rat infested. And at night, they would uh, shackle them and hang them upside down during the whole night so that they couldn't escape. And then during the day, they would execute prisoners. So you didn't know if it was your time. And so uh, for a year and a half, he was in prison in this situation. And then as the war went on, England started to move on their location. And so what they did was they had to take the prisoners and move them. And so he was moved through the jungle barefoot um, over bridges as they tried to get away from the English um, military. And as they would cross these bridges, he would, uh, he would think about throwing himself over the bridge just to end it all. And also his wife was pregnant um, they did not imprison her, but they let her visit him sometimes. And uh, after a year and a half, they released him so that he could help negotiate uh, peace between England and Burma and translate. But he was away from his wife, and as the months dragged on, he got a, a letter with a black seal that told him his wife had died of fever and his baby had also died a couple months later. And for two years, he denied his grief. But eventually, he would wander out into the jungle and build a hut and dig a grave and just ponder thoughts of death. And he would say, he cannot find God. He said, I believe in him, but I cannot find him. 
It's in these kinds of situations where the darkness seems to overwhelm us, right? We can't see God. We can't pretend that things are okay. There's, there's no cliche that anyone can say that is just going to wipe away our pain. The, the pain and shock is too deep. And we wonder where God was and why did he allow it? Because we've been faithful. He could have stopped it. We know he could have stopped it, but he didn't. And no amount of prayer is going to change the situation, right? The deed is done. A relationship is over. They're not coming back. Or you get a terminal illness. You're not going to be healed. The doctor gives you a time frame and that's it. Someone you love dies. And your life will never be the same. These things eventually touch every one of us. No one is exempt. And if you've never felt this, it's because you either haven't lived long enough or you're just in denial. Because it's coming. In a fallen world, it's guaranteed. I don't care how much money you have, you can't bribe away this kind of suffering. And so... What do we do? How can we keep our faith intact when our world is falling to pieces? And it seems like God is unconcerned. We'll find another faithful spiritual titan who faced the same question and how Jesus responded to him. Turn to Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. And we'll see what we should do When these doubts arise in the darkness, what do we do with our doubts in the darkness? What Jesus expects of us in the darkness and how we can best respond to Jesus in the midst of the darkness. So the very first thing uh, we see we should do when the doubts overwhelm us in the dark is that we should take those doubts to Jesus. Take your doubts to Jesus. To give some context to our passage uh, today, Jesus is starting to gain some acclaim. Uh, he's teaching and healing people, and people are starting to recognize that, that God is at work here. Earlier in the chapter, uh, Jesus heals a Roman centurion's servant, and he raises a widow's son from the dead in the town of Nain which is actually meant to mirror uh, the, the prophet Elijah's miracle in 1 Kings, where he raises a widow's son from the dead. And the people say, a great prophet is risen among us. And so the rumblings are spreading about Jesus actually being someone great. But is he the Messiah? Right? Let's, let's pick up at verse 18. Uh, The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, 
John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one to come or should we look for another? Right? At least they got the message right. Now, John has already declared Jesus to be the Messiah in chapter 3, right? John baptized Jesus and the, the spirit descended like a dove and the father said, this is my beloved son. So John has seen and heard these things. Maybe he hasn't seen all of these miracles, right? But he has still experienced confirmation of who Jesus is. Yet, he sends this question to Jesus. Why? Where is John? He's in prison, right? Why is John in prison? For rebuking the king and saying, you should not marry your brother's ex-wife, just as the law forbid, right? For being faithful and calling people in power to repentance, he ends up in prison, And again, prison was not a nice place 2,000 years ago, right? No AC, no TV. And it's when we are persecuted for being faithful, that's when we can become discouraged, especially when we see other people receiving God's blessing while we're waiting in prison. So in, in one way, this is John asking Jesus, When are you going to do something for me? See, it's very possible that John thought, like everyone else, the Messiah was going to come and overthrow the Roman occupiers and usher in the kingdom of God right now. And John hears about all these good things going on and says, hey, when are you going to do something with all that power to get me out of here and rule like the Messiah is supposed to? Are you the Messiah? So we can understand where John's doubt and and discouragement is coming from. And if John is allowed to have doubts, so are we. The Bible is full of people who doubt and are discouraged. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David. Most of the Psalms are about doubt and discouragement, right? That's one of the great freedoms that we have in the Christian faith, is that God understands that we won't understand and we're allowed to express our doubt to him. And so often our doubts are in the form of questioning the character of God. Are you the one I should trust? Are you the one or is there, should we look for another? Are you the one I can base my life on? Or was I wrong to believe in you? Because things are really dark right now, Jesus. Nothing is going right, and I need to hear from you. I know you have the power to do something about this. I've heard the stories of healing and rising from the dead and calming the storm. Use that power now. And so John brought his doubts to Jesus, and we should too, because it is so often through these doubts that we ask deeper questions about things we don't understand and we get answers that force our faith to go deeper. And when we pray and confess our doubt, we don't allow that seed of bitterness to grow and cause us to resent God and fall away from him. 
but we'll get to that. So take all of your doubts and disappointment and carry them to Jesus, believing that he will hear you just as he heard John. But how does Jesus respond to John's question? Does Jesus always swoop down to rescue his children while they are in the darkness? In the next part of our passage, Jesus wants us to know that he is enough in the darkness. I think this fits real well with what Pastor Nick was saying. Is Christ enough when we don't have anything? Let's read the rest of the passage, verses 21 through 23. In that hour... He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus hears the question, he understands who who it's coming from, and immediately goes into action and starts healing anybody around him close to him, right? You blind, bam, open them eyes. You can't hear, bam, here, listen to this. You lame, you can't walk, bam, go run a marathon. Actions speak louder than words, right? Jesus doesn't say, yeah, I'm the Messiah. And so he puts himself on display to leave no doubt as to who he is. And then he gives a personal message for John to John's messengers that is brilliant and frustrating in the way that Jesus communicates. Jesus doesn't, he hardly ever directly answers a question, right? Imagine you're John, you're in prison unfairly, and you send messengers to Jesus to soften your doubts. And they come back, and John says, well, what do he say? And they say, man, he, he really can do everything that we've heard about. He has a message for you. He says, the blind receive sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. It's true. We watched all of that. John says, okay, wow, like that's, and he thinks back to Isaiah, because John is the forerunner, right? John knows the Messianic texts. John says, wow, okay, uh, that's, that's Isaiah 35. That's a passage about the power of God to save and the vengeance he will bring on his enemies as he rescues his people. But, but he only mentions the healings about blind receiving sight and lame walking and, and not the saving. Huh. Okay. Uh, what else did he say? Well, he also said that the dead are raised up. Okay. Wow, yeah, good, great. Um, and the poor have good news preached to them. Ah, oh, okay, John says, ah, that's Isaiah 61. And Jesus has already used this passage in in Luke chapter 4 to confirm his identity as the Messiah, right? John says, okay, 
That's Isaiah 61. I know the next line. The next line is, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Yes, that's the next part, right? That's what he said, right? And his messages say, no. No, that's, that's all he said. But why did he leave out the parts in his message that explicitly talk about rescuing and releasing from prison? Are you sure that's all he said? That's, that's why he sent two messengers, right? In case one was a moron, right? The other one can confirm or correct. What, that's not what he said. Here's what he really said. But both of them say, no, that's, that's what he said. They say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, one more thing. He did say, uh, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And John gets it. What has Jesus told John? He essentially told him in the gentlest way possible, I am the Messiah. And you're going to die in prison. Please don't turn away from me because I did not deliver you. See, this verse is not some general statement to the world about Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Although some people can't accept that either, right? They say, oh, Jesus isn't the Messiah. And, and they don't agree with that. But Jesus has already claimed Messiahship and he never worried about anyone being offended by it. Nope, this is a personal message to John and to us to not be offended or turn away or stumble into sin because Jesus did not deliver us in the way we wanted when we were in the darkness. Jesus will go on to say that John is the greatest man to ever be born, right? John, the greatest man to ever be born, was not going to get to live his best life now. And if the greatest man ever born has doubts and is not delivered from prison, do we think we're going to be exempt? Anyone who has invested any part of their life and soul into their relationship with God is going to go through this. And many people do fall away because they have this expectation that I can tell God what to do and God's going to come in. And and we hear all these great stories of, of God delivering people. And we want that every single time. And then God doesn't do what we asked him to do. And people fall away. People say, God didn't come through for me. So what's the point? Stephen Fry is a uh, British actor. He's also an atheist. Um, and he was interviewed. And, and the interviewer asked him, said, well, what happens? What are you going to do if, like, when you die and you find out, oh, there is a God? And you stand before him. What will you say to him? And Fry says he would, say, he would, he would ask him about children dying of cancer and say, how dare you? And even if God did exist, 
he wouldn't serve him anyway. Now for us, it might not be as explicit as that. But Christians can do the same thing by our actions, right? Because so many people, when they were converted to Christianity, were converted to something besides Christ himself. What are some things that people are converted to instead of Christ? Call them counterfeit conversions. Huge thing today, prosperity, right? You come to Jesus, and all your bills are going to be paid. You're going to be healed, guaranteed. And then when those things don't happen, or the economy collapses and everyone is poor, what happens? Jesus didn't work. That's the whole basis for the book of Job. Is your relationship with God just about being good because he gives you stuff? I work for God, so he owes me. The whole point of the book of Job is to say that, no, our relationship with God should not be economics. Because life is hard, and that will fail. So some people want prosperity. Some people convert to a place. I want to go to heaven. So I'll believe some facts, and now I get to go to heaven. Because nobody wants to go to hell, right? Well, if I got a choice between heaven and hell, I want to go to heaven. So yeah, I'll believe, but only for heaven, not for Jesus. Some people are converted uh, just because of popularity and people and those kind of things. Some of their, their parents love them, right? Uh, people at church are nice to them, so they like being around Christian people, like being around church, so they become a Christian. Will that last if those friendships fall apart or people move away? No, because they weren't converted to Christ. They were converted to social friends. Um, I think I have up there, yeah, political movement. Some people are converted to republicanism. Uh, and so what happens when, when your political party isn't in power? Are you, still a, are you committed to Christ? Or are you committed to political ideals. Some people are committed to their purpose. Uh, God gives you purpose, right? God gives meaning to your life. And through your gifts, you can, you know, become well-known or, or feel like, oh, I'm making a difference. And that's good. But what if you're debilitated by sickness? And you just can't do what you felt gave you purpose anymore. Will, will you remain committed or, or will they accuse God of taking their meaning from them and turning over in their bed and face the wall like King Hezekiah did? Jesus has to be enough in the darkness. 
because he is enough. You must be converted to the person of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, when the tragedy hits and you have to draw that line in the sand and this watershed moment comes, you might be offended and turn away. But here's the catch, right? We often don't even know our own level of commitment until those heartbreaking moments happen. And we find out what gets burned away. And we find out what's left. And what am I really committed to? What little sliver of Jesus am I really committed to? And that's what I'm going to hold on to. Because Jesus knows the disappointment that is going to come over John when he hears this message. And he knows John has a choice of how he responds to it. John can hear it and get bitter and resentful and say that he wasted his life eating bugs and living out in the wilderness, serving a God who abandoned him when he needed it the most. Or he could accept it and trust God's will for his life and say, Jesus is still enough. But I think Jesus is pretty confident in how John is going to respond. In a few verses, uh, Jesus will ask the people, did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? No, John wasn't wishy-washy. He didn't take opinion polls. John had conviction, right? John was going to prison for what he believed. Did you go out to see a man in nice clothes? No. John was clearly not in it for the money. Could not afford nice clothes. He was wearing animal skins and eating crickets. That's not something you advertise as a benefit in your job. If you're looking for employees. Jesus says John was more than a prophet. And John was the greatest man to ever be born. He knows where John's commitment was, even if it had to be readjusted in the doubt. So each of us has that choice. Even in those soul-crushing times when they enter our lives, am I going to get bitter at God because he did not deliver? Or will I trust and be patient and endure, and persevere. Tim Keller says that uh, worry is not believing God will get it right, but bitterness is believing God got it wrong. Because what's the alternative when we have this choice? To turn away from God and let the bitterness grow deep in your soul and you become angry all the time? and never let the truth have any chance to affect your spirit, that won't help. You're just left with the the situation hasn't changed, but you've thrown away the one who wants to love you through it. The only one who can comfort you in that situation. If God didn't change the situation, surely you can't, right? Getting rid of God and saying, I'm going to handle this on my own. You can't change the situation, at least not for any long-term good, right? You might be able to manipulate an outcome in the short term, but it won't be what's best for you 
if you have to walk away from God to get it. So Jesus says there is an alternative, right? Resist the temptation to deny God and you will receive a blessing. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Here's how I'll ask you to apply it to your lives, Calvary. Endure. Endure. Persevere. Wait for the Lord. Understanding that everything that touches your life passes through the hand of God first. He is not surprised by what is happening. Don't give up. Don't give up. How can it be a blessing to endure the darkness without being rescued? How can we know it's not meaningless? Uh, This is not an exhaustive list, surely, but the Bible gives us some potential reasons. Um, One, it deepens our communion with God. We see in numerous Psalms that we learn how to struggle in prayer and cry out and pray in ways that we never would have attempted or experienced before. We spend more time praying than we ever did, right? We read the word more than we ever did. We listen to more sermons because we need to get that truth into our soul to make it through this journey and this trial. Number two, it increases our dependence. It enhances our humility, right? Second Corinthians chapter one tells us that Paul was brought to a point that he despaired of life. He wanted to die. But he says God brought him to that point so that he would not depend on himself, but on God. See, we can think we have our lives under complete control and some of us orchestrate our life, uh, so that we need God for as little as possible. We don't want to need God for anything. But it's in these times that we're brought to our knees and we're reminded who God is. Number three, uh, concentrates our compassion. Uh, In that same passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it tells us that we, we understand other people's suffering better when we've been through a time of intense suffering. He who feels it knows. All of a sudden, you care about what other people are going through because you wish someone cared about you when you went through that. And so our compassion grows. Number four, uh, executes our discipline. Um, Sometimes God needs to take us out to the woodshed. And wake us up and mature us and say, you need to grow up. And this is for your good. So how do we endure? Those are some reasons, but how do we endure? Number one, trust the character of God. He is good. He is not cruel. He is a good father who is committed to conforming us to the image of his son. Which leads to the next one. Uh, Remember Christ's suffering. 
Jesus asked that this cup would pass from him in the garden, right? Did God deliver him from that? No. God had better plans that required Jesus' suffering. And his death and resurrection saves you and me because he was willing to go through it. Number three, engage in community. Trying to struggle through it alone will probably just end in more sin. Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 13 warns us, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Believers, encourage and be gentle and be patient with each other because you don't know who you're saving from deception and falling away. Um, now, while preparing for this message, I had a temptation to, to go really dark, right? And just say, endure the trial. Persevere in the suffering because God is God and he does what he wants. And when bad things happen, just deal with it. Right? John died in prison, so you need to be ready to do the same. But... But as I prepared, I was reminded that that God does not bring us into these things without giving us any comfort, right? Many times he brings us into these trials in order to reshape us and redeem this situation to create something new. Um, St. John of the Cross, he was a monk in uh, 16th century Spain. And he was also thrown into prison for his faith, and he wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul. It's a great title, right? It's available at Logos, um, the Logos bookstore. Uh, And he, he described these dark experiences of wrestling with God and the torment of it and how it can last for years. But he reminds us that God is still working in the struggle. Here's what he says. He says, if it is to be really effectual, it will last for some years, however severe it may be. Since the purgative process allows intervals of relief wherein, by the dispensation of God, this darkness, this dark contemplation ceases to assail the soul in the form and manner of purgation. It's okay. And assails it after an illuminative and a loving manner, wherein the soul, like the one that has gone forth from this dungeon and imprisonment and is brought into the recreation of spaciousness and liberty, feels and experiences great sweetness of peace and loving friendship with God, together with a ready abundance of spiritual communication. All right, if you didn't get all that, he just said, God is not going to abandon you or forget you. He will comfort you through the trial. We see it all through the Bible. God didn't free the Hebrews for 400 years. But at the end of Exodus chapter 2, it says, God heard 
and God remembered, and he saw, and he knew. James 5, verse 10 through 11 reads, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed, blessed, who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, even if he doesn't save us from this furnace, we will not bow. And then they're thrown into the furnace, and God is with them in the furnace. Even Adoniram Judson would eventually come out of his dark place, and he would remarry and have more kids and have more few. Uh, fruitful ministry. He still had a really hard life. But he trusted God. So God may not deliver you from the trial in the way that you desire, but he will be with you in it and comfort you through it and reshape you for his purposes. So, Take your doubts to Jesus. He's enough. Endure. Persevere. Don't be offended. Don't stumble. Don't give up. And you will be blessed. Let's pray. Lord, you know the situation of each person here tonight, this morning. You know, uh, God, some of us have been offended by you. Some of us have taken situations in our life and gotten bitter about it. And we think we're angry at people, but we're really bitter at you because you allowed it. Some of us won't admit it. Some of us still come to church and sit in the pew but we've kind of shut down. God, I pray that you open hearts this morning. I pray that you give comfort and peace in just the right specific way for that person who is struggling with doubt this morning, God. Lord, we thank you for Jesus for his willingness to be denied his request and still go through the suffering so that we may be your children. Jesus, please show yourself to be worthy in each of our hearts that we may not just sing songs that are cliches, but in these real moments of struggle, that our hearts would be yours. In Jesus' name, amen.